Hello, and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm your host, Gregory Landaway. Hello, and welcome to Episode 9 of the Planetary Regeneration Podcast with your host, Gregory Landaway. Uh, this episode is with my friend Neil Spackman, who um, has done some amazing work around the world, greening deserts, um, is an entrepreneur, a recent graduate of the Stanford Business School. Um, you may know his work at the al Badja project in Saudi Arabia, where he worked to uh, re-green and regenerate a watershed in one of the most arid parts of the world to provide a rural livelihood for um, um, nomads who are no longer nomadic. So we had a great conversation, um, really getting at the intersection of what it takes and why it's necessary to reinvent the economics of land use and agriculture to create rural livelihoods that are aligned with long-term regeneration. I hope you have as much fun listening to this as I had um, having the podcast conversation with Neil, um, and I look forward to your comments. Neil, welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I can't think of anyone better to be on the show, and uh, I'm, 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 I'm sorry that you know, it sounds like you had a, a rough uh, night or early morning, but I'm grateful to get a chance to, to chat. Well, thanks. I'm happy to be on. Yeah. So, um, very happy to be on. How many, how many of these have you done? So we're like six episodes. Well, I'm actually like eight episodes in, but have released six, I think. Um, okay. And, uh, yeah, the, the beginning, Arc has mostly been focused on uh, blockchain technology, decentralized finance, and sort of uh, mechanism design, crypto economics, and stuff. And and now I'm starting an arc back through uh, sort of regenerative enterprise, um, regenerative ag, land stewardship, and sort of the economics okay. of the economics of ecological regeneration itself. And so. Um, uh, yeah. the, in that light, I'm really excited to be chatting with you because um, you've done a lot oh, of great, great work in the space. Say hi to Gregory. Hello. Hello. I'm, I'm on a phone call with Gregory for the next hour. Oh. Okay. <laughs> well, oh, in one hour. In one hour, I'll come help you. Or so. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Camp is six. Cam is six. He's my youngest. He's my six-year-old. Nice. I I have a uh, I have a I have a two and a half-year-old boy. So mm. you're a little ahead of me. <laughs> and a and a nine-month-old girl. They're so much fun. Yeah. Oh wow. So, Beauty. In the middle. Yeah, it's so good. It's so good. So um, many. A lot of my audience is. Um, at least at this stage, is actually going to be coming from the sort of crypto space. Um, uh -huh. So it would probably be useful for, for them for you to do a little bit of like broad framing about your sort of prior work. Um, okay. And um, 
you know, in sort of like just context, the the ecological and, yeah. and economic potential of drylands yeah. landscapes and, um, you yeah. know. So uh, let's start in 2010. In 2010, I quit an office job to join the Albeda Project as one of the co-founding members. The Albeda Project is a comprehensive development program south of Mecca in Saudi Arabia. And I worked primarily with two tribes, lived and worked with two tribes of settled nomads, where my job was to design and build essentially a a prototype for what could be a, uh, a new economic base that capitalized on the people's heritage as herders and nomads, and that was sustainable. We were thinking of it as sustainable at the time. And I was really interested in this kind of thing. My work, I didn't have any experience in it. I had book knowledge, um, sustainable food systems, um, ecological health, uh, water and land had, had been a passion of mine for a number of years, but I'd never had the chance to really work in it. And so this was a chance to uh, really try something audacious and see if we could reverse 60 years of desertification in, a, in an extreme climate. We averaged about 60 millimeters of rainfall a year and uh, hit 50 degrees Celsius um, for a good month, uh, usually end of July, early August. We would get up, that's like 127 yeah, Fahrenheit. That's crazy. <laughs> um, and, and we, so I was kind of plopped in the middle of this desert with these Arab Muslim nomadic peoples, and I had to figure out how to get them to work with me and uh, figure out a way to make that land productive again in a way that wasn't, you know, depleting water resources or in a way that uh, uh, wasn't contributing to uh, a long-standing trend of, of deforestation and desertification there. Uh, and I was there, I was managing director until the middle of 2018. We had... Uh, sex, a successful run on a 100-acre prototype where we, we did successfully convert you know, a very small watershed into something more akin to a savanna ecology than a desert one. And um, it's there. It's alive. It's gone you know, up, up to two and a half years with no rainfall, no water whatsoever, and surviving still. Uh, and right now, the, the Albeda project is stuck in some politics with respect to a lot of things. In 2016, we were named the National um, Housing Development Prototype by the Ministry of Housing. Um, and they're building a 220-unit housing complex for people who had been living out there um, in really, really poor housing conditions. Um, there's been a lot of infrastructure work due to the project. We got the, a police station there, an ambulance, so now people have access to emergency services. 
the cell phone tower that got put up was as a result of our project. So it's been, we have dealt with infrastructure, public health, education, government services. Um, but my particular role was as, you know, the representative on the ground of the project and the designer and developer of how do we create a sustainable economy in this place that, that increases you know, the biological capital, the hydrological capital of the players. So that was, that was through middle of 2018. Then I went and did a year at Stanford where I studied business. And my purpose for that was essentially to say, okay, I, I, we have this amazing living system that, that's come out of a very desolate place. Now, how do we turn it into enterprises? Yeah. Uh, because I, I think enterprise has to be the vehicle for, for this kind of work. Uh, the scope of the problem is in the trillions of dollars and the scope of charity is, you know, hundreds of billions a year. So it's a charity cannot, cannot address uh, the scale of the problems that we're trying to tackle when we talk about regeneration of ecologies and Earth's ecosystems. So, but if you can turn it into an enterprise, then you have a financial engine that drives the expansion of your systems. Um, and that allows you to have a much broader reach over time than if you're an NGO or a, or a nonprofit. And, you know, so much of the energy of a nonprofit is devoted to, you know, getting the funding for the next project. Um, and so I, I, liked, I liked the system of using enterprise using businesses as, as the vehicle yeah for, uh, yeah definitely well so one what emerges when you say that um is you know just just to sort of like touch on briefly in the discussion uh, what about government so so enterprise mm -hmm. and government obviously are both sort of the two big uh drivers in the global economy yep. And um, yep. what role, if any, from your perspective on the ground and, and your sort of philosophy in life, does government have or have not in building the regenerative economy of the future? I think it really depends on which government you're talking about. I mean, in, uh, in Saudi Arabia, you just got to get in the room with one guy who has the power to make things happen and if you can convince him to take the right steps you're you're solid right it's it's much easier to do this in a monarchy than in a democracy mm -hmm. uh, and and i actually i did consider going into government that when i was done in saudi arabia here in the u.s and i just think the amount of stagnation the amount of uh the the inability of many governments to get things done um, when you're talking about nation states like the U.S. It's, it, I said, well, am I more likely to get policy changes done or am I more likely to create a successful business, you know, that acre by acre is going to be making a difference? And I picked the second. Yeah. Uh, and I think it really does depend on the government. And But I, I don't have... I don't have much faith in governments. I think governments tend to be 
a lagging institution rather than an entrepreneurial or a innovating institution. Mm -hmm. uh, governments tend to follow rather than lead, uh, depending on who they right, and they pick who they follow. But and of course there are exceptions, right? And there's you know national funding for all sorts of uh, innovations, generally in technology than anything else. But I looked at that and I thought, okay, well, am I more, yeah, more likely to be a successful businessman than to be a successful politician? Right. <laughs> so, so, I mean, there's a there's a couple of different places where I'm really interested in digging in with you. One is in sort of like the global vision of the potential of arid landscapes mm. and. Um, just because I think so many people probably have a sense of, you know, the world's deserts as as wastelands essentially, and and maybe don't even have yeah. a maybe don't even have a historical context for how they became wastelands and and the role of land use, um, bad land use in getting there. And so there's like a bit a bit of context that I imagine is probably useful that I I I think probably underpins your perception of the world and like where you see intervention points possible Absolutely. and so that's Absolutely. so like what is the potential what what is the potential of these arid landscapes um that you've sort of fallen in love with through this process in saudi arabia yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's a love-hate relationship <laughs> um but the potential is enormous uh because I mean, there are naturally occurring deserts uh, where, you know, Hadley cells or uh, rain shadows come. I mean, the reason the Sahara exists now is mostly because of Hadley cells and the fact that it's in the rain shadow of the, of the is it the Atlas in Morocco? The, the mountain range up. Yeah, the uh, Atlas. Yeah. And, and define, de, define Hadley cells for, for those who are A aren't. Hadley cell is caused by the tilt of the earth. We have no influence whatsoever on this, on this pattern. But it means that the equator is the closest part of the globe to the earth. And so at the equator. To the sun. You get very strong heat. Yeah, to the sun. Yeah. Thank you. Yep. Um, so at the equator, you get these a lot of evaporation, where you get tons of water evaporating into the atmosphere, and then within 10 to 15 degrees of the equator, you have these very green belts, right? Within the tropics, you tend to have very wet tropics. Um, and then beyond those 15 degrees, you have very dry air with almost no water in it. Right. And so you will notice that outside of the tropics, you know, at some point in the middle of the subtropics, you get these belts of desert, um, both north and south of the equator. And you can you can follow these along on Google Earth or something where Hadley cells between 15 and 25 degrees just cause very dry air with very little rainfall. Uh, and so that's that's a massive pattern that that contributes greatly to the desertification of, of areas within those latitudes. And so the last time the Sahara, for instance, was not a desert was during the Ice Age, when you had giant glaciers across Europe, and you would have winds sweep across those glaciers, pick up 
moisture and then they would dump it in the Sahara. Uh, along with the water that they pick up from the Mediterranean. But since the end of the Ice Age, it's, it's been, you know, Hadley cells are, are a massive factor in, in where deserts occur and where they don't. And most people aren't really aware of that, but it's, it's, it's a factor. I mean, if someone were like, okay, well, go green the Sahara, I'd be like, well, some things we can influence and some things we can't. Mm-hmm. But then you've got you've got lots of other places where desertification has been largely man-made, um, and here I'm thinking about uh, where I've been working in Saudi Arabia. The west coast of Saudi Arabia historically has not been, you know, a true desert. It's been a dryland forest, much like uh, much like um, a lot of Baja, for instance, is is dryland forest. And desertification there has been caused by policy changes that eliminated indigenous management systems. Um, across the whole of the Middle East, there is an indigenous management system called IMMA, um, which essentially means protected land. And this system predates Islam. Um, so it was functioning for at least 2,000 years. And it was a tribal management system that maintained the fertility of the landscape. And these were largely abolished in the 1950s across the Fertile Crescent um, and in the Arabian Peninsula. And so they've had, um, because of that change in management, the tribal boundaries uh, essentially were eradicated. And you've had a free-for-all on grazing such that wherever it rains, in uh, in the Mecca region, for instance, when it when it rains in El Beva, we get people from you know 250 300 miles away bringing all of their animals to graze on that land, and then as soon as the grass is gone, they're out of there. Yeah, right? and so it's um, that 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 collapse in the traditional management system led to a tragedy of the commons, and. and uh, and that's what's been going on for the last 60 years because the commons essentially was erased. Right. The tragedy of the not commons, uh, basically. <laughs> right. Right. Which is, a, I, think, I think our argument on that is largely semantic more than anything else. But um, so that was the dryland forest. And I've got testimony on YouTube from old men who are walking through this completely desolate landscape and they're saying, there used to be so many trees here that you couldn't see the mountains, right? And the mountains are only 100 yards away. Uh, wow. And so there's, and uh, we could also talk about the Fertile Crescent. You know, the modern day Iraq used to be the most fertile place on the planet and hundreds of years of irrigation made that land salty. And it, by and large, it hasn't recovered since. So irrigation was, was a massive factor in desertification. Um, in the Fertile Crescent, in uh, the Mediterranean, um, with the Maya, it was uh, deforestation that caused massive droughts. And so there's, there are all these factors where ecological degradation precedes uh, environmental disasters 
and breakdowns in traditional societies that in turn worsen the ecological degradation. And that's, that's the short version of what desertification is. Right, right. Sort of um, as you're sort of sharing that narrative, I'm reminded of uh, Jared Diamond's uh, book Collapse, where he sort of mm-hmm. catalogs yeah. the, these different um, civilizations and their uh, successes or failures in adapting, mm-hmm. in, in realizing that their um, sort of internal economic dynamics are creating these massive desertification and degradation events. Some societies yeah. realize and adapt. Um, some societies don't and die, essentially. Yeah, or, or move somewhere else. Or, or, or move uh, somewhere else, right. Right. I, I really like um, Montgomery's book, Dirt. Yeah. Have you, read, have you read that one? One of my favorite books. It's just so, he so clearly lays out the connection between soil and civilization. Yeah. Uh, and you wouldn't, you wouldn't think that Roman military expansionism had something to do with erosion off the top of your head. And he pretty clearly shows that, that it is a factor, maybe not the determining one, but a significant one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's a, well, I think that's basically the, in my mind, that that intersection between civilization as we know it and dirt is, yeah, it's it's one of it's the a, most pertinent. It's not understood. Yeah, it's not understood, not nearly enough. Uh, and once once you do become aware of it, you start to see it everywhere. There's, and probably some of that, from my part, is a little bit of confirmation bias. Yeah, that happens. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's everywhere. It happens. It's happening now. It's happened dozens of times in the past. And, uh, and it's hard to communicate. Where You know, it's, it's an externality. It's a result of externalities that all of a sudden has to become internalized in very severe ways. Right. So, so let's talk about that a little bit. So, you know, by and large, I think um, when, when you and I have had in-person conversations about mm-hmm. sort of like the, the regenerative enterprise vision, and I, I remember having a couple conversations with you a, a little while back when you were working on some visions for sourcing ingredients from regeneratively managed landscapes and, and arid Land and in yep. arid lands, and you know, I myself have done some work in sort of on the sourcing side. You know, like how do you link you bet. Um, um, pr- sort of the primary productivity of a diversified agroecosystem into the human economy? Mm-hmm. There's sort of like a thesis there around around um, regenerative enterprise, but then also we have, you know, alongside of that, there's what you were just talking about, which is that. There's this massive externalized cost in the sort of like agricultural mining of resources, soil degradation, desertification, and it's essentially subsidized. It's there's sort of like bad agriculture is is massively subsidized, both governmentally, like both governmentally and like officially through policy, but also subsidized by sort of like ignorance that leads to 
really poor price discovery by market dynamics, like externalization of things Absolutely. that shouldn't be externalized. Absolutely. So how, what's the relationship between a transformational approach that focuses on sort of um, an entrepreneurial venture of bringing sort of like novel or higher value decommodified ingredients into the market versus and or complemented with an entrepreneurial approach that um, tr tries to, where possible, internalize previously externalized costs and sort of like, yeah, what do, what do you see there at the, that intersection? Where's your mind moving right now in the in the ventures that I, you've got in front of you? Oh, and goodness. yeah, I see a tremendous amount of opportunity. If uh, to be frank, a lot of opportunity that other people don't see. Uh, and part of that involves understanding uh, how to bring degraded landscapes back, mm -hmm. right? Because if, let's take uh, let's let's say current trends continue unabated, and in thirty years the Ogallala Aquifer is completely depleted. And 80% of the farmers in Nebraska put their land up for sale. Yeah. Right? That land's going to be worth nothing. Yeah. Because there's no water. And it's and probably fairly rain. salted, too, at, at that stage. Yeah. At that, in 30 years, yeah, it's and, probably and pretty. It's, it's, it's a little bit more salinized than it is now. It's got a long history of you know, pesticide, herbicide, fungicide application on it. Anyone else looks at that land, they're like, this is worthless, right? Which means if you're somebody that knows how to bring that back, not just ecologically, but to, to create something productive, it essentially means you can buy low and sell high on that land. Yeah. Right? So, so that's an opportunity. Um, and that's that's actually part of the business model of what not not Nebraska per se, but as part of the business model of the company that I'm running right now, where we are actively seeking extremely distressed, desertified, destroyed landscapes where other people do not see value, uh, and that land can be had for cheap, right? Yeah. We're buying at between three hundred and five hundred dollars an acre. And if things work out within a decade, it'll be worth 10,000 an acre. Yeah. Right? So we're taking an asset worth $500 and turning it into something worth $10,000 in a decade with about $4,000 worth of investment. Yep. So that's an opportunity, right? Um, another, another thing I see is that... Um, where you can find or pinpoint how externalities are affecting things in other systems. There's another common, not common, but another similar kind of dynamic. Like you take a, take a fishery off New Orleans in a dead zone, for instance. A dead zone is worth nothing. It's dead. Yeah. Um, Everything that couldn't swim away was choked by algae blooms that consumed all the oxygen in the water. 
And so you have, there are reports of, you know, fishermen who used to catch fish and now they're only catching jellyfish. Um, and if, if water rights or if fishing rights were geographically set, which they're not, which is why I'm comfortable talking about this, because it's a hypothetical. I would go and buy the fishing rights to a dead zone, right? 50 years. Give me 50 years of fishing rights to that dead zone. Maybe cost, you know, a million dollars for 50 square kilometers or something, because it's worthless. It's completely worthless. Um, and then you go upriver and you get a contract for floating wetlands on the Mississippi, for instance, right? And those floating wetlands cost about $4 per square foot. Um, you can produce flowers on them. You can produce rice. You can produce any sort of thing um, where those things pay for themselves. But the other thing they do is they clean up your dead zone, right? So if you can find places to insert um, a way to harvest what is otherwise viewed as pollution, um, that would dramatically flip the value of those fishing rights for one thing. Mm. Um, but then you still have a successful business upriver doing floating wetlands. And so there's, um, there, there are, if, if you understand where the choke points are in that cycle or where the bottleneck is or where the flows are of essentially wasted resources, and to the extent that those wasted resources are damaging something else, then you've got a twofer where you can harvest the wasted resources and dramatically increase the value of what they were destroying previously. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if that's where you wanted me to go on that question. That's fantastic. But, uh, I mean, so what I'm hearing you describe in general is sort of like a, uh, you know, long regeneration investment strategy where you're, you're sort of absolutely. like you're buying these currently distressed assets um, and, yep. and, and part flipping of, them. Yeah. Flipping them through ecological development. Yeah. And, and people do this in real estate all the time, right? They, they determine, yeah, they do. uh, determine a location um, that's currently, you know, they perceive it as undervalued and they buy up a couple key properties mm -hmm. to develop and they buy the rest of them up to sell after that, whatever that development is yeah. increases the value. So after they've flipped it. Yeah. So there's like a, there's a pretty clear corollary with, you know, more conventional business practices, the, the and, it, and in fact, it's very, it very is very much in keeping with kind of like a, a conventional approach to business. The, the difference is there's yeah. a skill set. There's a skill set that That's you exactly that you have that that other people you know um, in the permaculture um, land restoration. Um, environmental engineering, you know, sort of li living machine, John Todd style stuff you're sort of bringing in with the floating wetlands. There's a skill set that's needed to, um, absolutely to de-risk and in fact, you know, um, make that upside come true basically. Um, yeah, 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 yeah no, it's, uh, it's interesting. I mean, I see something very similar. I, I, I oftentimes, like people, I oftentimes get, I, I'm sort of like, I get all excited and I say to people, there may never be another moment in human history where there's 
so much amazing density of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere for us to turn into plants. <laughs> this yeah. is like, this is it. Yeah. This is a gold rush, man. Get in now while you can. <laughs> it's never going to be easier. To, it's, just, yeah. it's just a question of how, how are you harvesting that and then what's your, you know, what's the value add that you're bringing to that? But it's, it's true. It's, it, there's, and the thing is you've got to get it out. The other side to it is that there is starting to be opportunity for payments of ecological services, as you very well know, because that's the game you're playing in right now. Yeah. But um, that, that's just a cherry on top for me, right? I, th I think I've got a, a formidable business plan as is, and now you're telling me, oh, if I'm sequestering carbon, I can also get paid for that. Um, well, that's the, th this is, to me, that's the tipping point. So to me, if it looks so stupidly amazing, the opportunity to get, to build a global landscape restoration and regeneration um, business, you know, movement, yeah. movement, sure, but yeah. business, if it is so overwhelmingly profitable over the next 10 years for capital to move, and, and deploy the couple, as you said, the couple of trillion dollars that are needed to really engage meaningfully with yep. this, then it will happen. Yeah. It will happen. And to me, that case really becomes uh, bulletproof when you bring short-term liquidity through the provision of ecosystem services. Because that, because yeah. in, in the, because otherwise it's, it's very long-term and there's, there's, um, like, like if we can bring liquidity that is directly tied essentially to the success of those upstream mitigation practices or whatever it is, yep. like right there, you're yep. just bringing liquidity right to that moment. The whole thing looks really good from a business business perspective. Absolutely, absolutely. So that's, um, I mean, that's that what I want to do. That's what I'm doing right now, and I'm focused on. Uh, coastal deserts and desert landscapes. Uh, we will. So I'm I'm a CEO of a company called Regenerative Resources Corporation. Um, we incorporated in July, and we have um, Carl Hodges as one of our advisors. He was one of the founders of Biosphere Two, and he came up with a system called Integrated Seawater Agriculture. Mm -hmm which essentially uses seawater to create artificial wetlands on the coast, and they're ridiculously productive. Yeah. Um, we also have uh, one, of the chief one of the chief scientists at NASA is one of our advisors. Who's, his focus has been sustainability and land use. Uh, um, and we, we're five partners on this. But uh, we hope to launch the first regenerative shrimp product in Q1 of 2021. Yeah, amazing. So that, that that's our that's our first go-to market. So is, so uh, describe is, to the audience a little bit about what would make a um, shrimp farm regenerative. Like regenerative? what? Yeah, why? Like to discern yeah. between you know yeah. just sort of like mangrove destruction and status quo conventional shrimp and the regenerative shrimp vision that you're that you're moving well, towards. Let, let me give you the context on, on the status quo because right now you can't eat shrimp. 
there is some shrimp that is sustainably harvested and it's certified and it's, you're still taking stuff out of the ocean. And that's not most shrimp. Most shrimp is coming from overstressed fisheries. Um, and there's all sorts of, you know, associated damage to the ocean through that, whether it's, you know, they're dredging the ocean floor and destroying the ecology down there, or they're catching, you know, tons of bycatch, which is fish that you didn't intend to catch that ends up in your nets anyway. Um, or it's coming from, you know, farms in Southeast Asia, you know, Indonesia, Thailand, India, um, where they are destroying mangrove forests to grow the shrimp. Their supply chains are extremely dirty. Uh, um, and there, there have even been some reports of slave labor being, you know, associated with some of these companies. So it's, it's, it's a dirty business either way. Um, so what we are doing is we're doing shrimp aquaculture on desert coasts where there's nothing living. They're, they're just complete salinized desert coasts. And we do shrimp aquaculture. Then we pump the effluent through a constructed wetland um, that essentially absorbs the effluent and turns into a mangrove forest. So we regrow mangrove forests on these desert coasts using the shrimp effluent. The really beautiful and elegant part of this is, is that we manage those mangrove forests to produce 100% of the feed for our aquaculture. Yeah. Um, because most aquaculture feed is either monocrop soybeans or it's bycatch. Um, and it's there's nothing clean about what most shrimp are eating in aquaculture systems. But we are producing 100% of our feed from the mangrove forest that we grow, right? So you start off with this desolate desert landscape. You get shrimp tanks on a, you know, a very, very small percentage of it, and the rest gets converted into mangrove forests. So it's mangrove agroforestry integrated with shrimp aquaculture to turn desert landscapes into mangroves. Right. Um, and I'm so excited to be doing this. I'm so excited. Um, our first site is in Mexico. Uh, um, it's about 500 hectares. We have a second site identified in Mexico. That's the size of Manhattan Island, um, where we have a sales contract on that for when we raise the investment to go after something that size. And then we have interest in Somaliland. Um, essentially, we've got a 2,000-hectare prototype site in Somaliland where we'll build a, an African center for seawater agriculture um, and another tens of kilometers of coastline that we could expand onto there. And where, and I mean, altogether, there's over 150 million hectares of land where this system is appropriate around the planet. 150 million hectares. Yeah, and that's so we that's what we're going after. And can you give me a per hectare um, some 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 thoughts on per hectare productivity? Um, you know, both on the you know both on the sort of like saleable sort of private goods, but also on the 
public good side, carbon and things like this? Yeah, so on the let's take that site that's 8,000 hectares in Mexico. Um, we think we would be doing – so that's 20,000 acres. And we think we'll be doing between 80 and 120 million in revenues on that site altogether. Mm-hmm. And primarily uh, from shrimp. Shrimp. There are a handful of other products that come out of the system, uh, and it's it's very flexible. I mean, if there were in Somaliland, for instance, there's like a three kilogram crab that lives in mangroves um, called a mud crab, and. Uh, they only have two tiny pieces of mangrove along their coastline where these crabs live. They're endemic to the area. Uh, and, you know, we can put crabs into the system at no cost. It costs us nothing to add those crabs, but they can become a significant revenue source. Um, we've looked at, there's other types of aquaculture we can do. We can put tilapia into the seawater system. Um, we can do lobsters, we can do oysters, we can do clams, we can do sea cucumbers, we can do any number of things. But the, the beautiful thing about mangroves, and I can't find where I saw this statistic, but I did see it in like a National Geographic. Two-thirds of the world's ocean species inhabit mangroves during some part of their life cycle. Yeah. So the the... The number of things that we could do in a given system, you know, assuming that it's appropriate ecologically, right? Because we we don't want to import stuff. We want to use native species on these. Uh, But given the ecological suitability and the financial suitability, the system is extremely flexible on what we can produce. But we've chosen shrimp as the the primary one that we're talking about because of uh, market realities in the u.s and europe right and what's the uh well i mean i've got a couple of different questions one just what's the sort of how much permeability is there is this sort of like you're pumping up onto land and really nothing gets back out to sea or is there like an interface exactly okay nope you pump it up onto the land you have wetlands and lagoons and artificial rivers and all this stuff. Um, but whatever makes it back to the ocean is being filtered by a mangrove forest and it's going out underground. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. So there, there, is, there, there is no ocean outlet. We are capturing all of the nutrient that we create um, in a closed-loop cycle. Yeah. Uh- and so the... What are the carbon numbers? Yeah, we are I mean, continuously pumping. Carbon numbers on mangroves is 65 tons per acre per year for the first three or four years. Yeah, it's amazing. And then it kind of stabilizes with a slow, yeah. or slower increase. With a slow. Yeah. Yep. But they have found, so take mangrove forests in Baja, which is a desert. They found peat 13 feet deep yeah. underneath these mangroves. Yeah. Right? So none of the carbon's in the biomass. Right? It's a tiny, tiny fraction. All of the carbon's going into the into the soil. 
Yeah. And I think we don't know. I mean, science doesn't, hasn't really figured out yet. Um, our scientific community hasn't really figured out yet that sort of like longer term carbon or like organic carbon peat and soil and, you know, the deep yeah, soil yeah, cycle, the liquid carbon cycles and whatnot are, are all still a yeah, little, it's uh, very dynamic. Yeah. It's very dynamic, but that's, um, so my, two of my partners did this system. They did a shrimp system in Eritrea from 1999 to 2003. Um, and if you look on YouTube, a video called Greening Eritrea, you can, you can find some of their exposition on that site of what they were doing. But, um, they had scripts come out and test their soil. And so the 65 ton number comes from what Scripps studied on that site. Mm -hmm. uh, so we, there is precedent for that um, that exists within our company. Otherwise, I would be very reluctant to give any kind of number. And, and that number may change depending on where we are. Right. right. Maybe that's what it was in Eritrea, but it may be very different in you know, Mexico or Colombia or Australia. So... What you're describing is really interesting to me because basically what you're saying, which I love, it's like classic entrepreneurism, which is find, find the most, you know, like just use the gradient. What's the most distressed possible asset that you could work to bring into a state that is yep. more valuable? Um, yep. And people oftentimes think about that in terms of like the classic mercantile trader where you're taking something of you know uh, of low value because it's overabundant to some place where it's of high value because it's rare um but here i mean there's a something like that kind of going on but here what you're saying is actually humans can be a force for regeneration um while creating the primary productivity needs of our global economy like food Shrimp. That's, um, that's. I mean, when when I was out in the desert, and I was very isolated, and we we've got these two very different happening. One of which is, you know, we've got population growth and a need to feed people. Um, although I don't I don't buy into all of the details of that dominant narrative, but but. The fact remains that um, population is growing, and that population growth is enabled by a food system that is destroying our resource base. Yeah. Right. And so, where where if trends continue, we get to a point where, you know, do do we have to pick between preserving the Amazon and Chinese people eating beef? Because uh, that seems to be the choice right now, right? And so the there's gotta be a way to solve both of those at the same time, even though they're at odds with each other. And that's kind of been what I've been searching for. Well, for I think I think time. that that's right on. I mean, I don't think it's in either or at all, actually. And and in and in the and in that case of the Amazon, at least from my perspective. Part of the answer there is is providing compensation for the for the provision of the public good 
of the ecosystem yeah, service absolutely. and function that the Amazon provides <clears throat> because that makes that particular ecosystem less financially viable for beef and more financially viable for, right. you know, um, multi-strat agroforestry, which also, by the yeah. way, can produce plenty of... Um, plenty of food. Food. But, but it doesn't mean we have to destroy the forest. Right, right. And, uh, and, and so yeah. I do think... Yeah, that, I mean, that, that really is the crux of the issue for me, is... But the only way we're going to find that is if some, you know, we could we could mandate it by fiat. Like there could be a government law that insists that, you know, this forest is preserved. But as long as that preserved forest is adjacent to rural poverty, yeah. you're not going to stop the cycle. Um, and this is something that, I'm better at putting into words now, but it was something I realized very quickly. You know, in El Beda, in my work in Saudi Arabia, deforestation was driven largely by people cutting down wood, right? Cutting down trees, but they were just looking for their next meal, right? They may understand at a very visceral level that cutting down trees is not good for them. Um, and in fact, people would say that to me frequently. They would say, we know this is bad, but we have to do it, right? Because I'm not in a position to think about the well-being of this land in 10 years. I've got to pay for a hospital bill or I've got to feed my kids tomorrow. And yeah. so, and this is, this is a pattern everywhere. Everywhere. Where ecological degradation is... Um, it exacerbates rural poverty, but then rural poverty becomes a significant driver of that process as people are forced into short-term thinking um, and, and forced to extract from that ecology rather than to work with it um, in order to make ends meet. And so that, that's another key pillar of, of, uh, of our company is that we are trying to create systems that bind rural prosperity to ecological function yeah right where the where the rural poor see you know what if i participate in this system i'm going to be so much better off than if i just cut it all down or overgraze it right or plow it or whatever it may be um and that's that's a, like deep inside my soul that's like a driving motivation for me um is to reverse that to show salient examples of how we reverse that trend and reverse that pattern. Um, because then, um, then it doesn't depend on, you know, the government sending a military to shoot the poor people who want to cut the trees down. Right. I know, uh, sometimes people fantasize about this. They're like, let's just send the U S military down to the Amazon and they can protect the forest. Right. And, I, and it's, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's not a not a healthy dream to have, um, but if we can if we can create communities where people see that their prosperity is directly tied to ecology, right? Where ecology and wealth 
are so directly connected that that people can't deny that that's what it is. Yeah. Uh, Amen. That's that's a, a massive driving motivation for me. Yeah. Amen. I mean, I resonate with that. I mean, I'm in such heated agreement on so many different different levels uh, that that is yeah that is essentially the imperative of of the moment. You know, um, that's a, that, of our generation. Yeah, especially the that next exactly. ten years. You know, especially the next ten years, and it's sort of. Uh, it's enormously invigorating and inspiring to me because I think it flips the, you start, to, as you were noting, you know, you start to see opportunity everywhere, right? Uh, there's almost overwhelming yeah. opportunity because there's, because that is the state of the world everywhere. So there is a whole planet of opportunity for engaging <laughs> <laughs> with this with the, right. sort of realigning short-term economics with long-term ecological health, that that trick, right? And the, and I think there's a number of different ways to get at it. I'm very excited about the way that you're describing. I'm I'm curious if you if we were to sort of fast forward ten years into the future, and we were to say that uh -huh. uh, that um, it's uh, it's regenerative resource ventures. Is that the name of the company? Regenerative Resources Corporation. Regenerative Resources Corporation is has, yep. you know, is on, I don't know, five continents and has yep. hundreds of thousands of hectares under management. Yep. Um, so here's, here's, here's the goal. Do you want to hear it? Yeah, yeah, let's hear it. We're, we're going to plant a billion mangroves by 2030 um, and be a billion-dollar company. Yeah, awesome. Okay, so you're a billion dollar company from a billion mangroves, which I love yeah. the connection between, as you were noting, like we have to reconnect that value stems from ecological health. That is what generates Absolutely. value. Okay, so Absolutely. What's, the, what's next after that? Where would your mind go? What's the next opportunity zone that is invigorating? Um, Maybe you even start it somewhere in the middle, uh, but where 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 do you see opportunity? This sort of in in the sea of overwhelming opportunity, what's the next one that draws your eye? So if we're if we're as successful as I hope, um, then I think it, the strategy does become a bit more political. Um, I'd love to buy Iowa cornfields and convert them into you know, civil pastoral systems. Yeah. I don't think that's a huge opportunity financially because those lands are expensive. Yeah. Because they are propped up by, you know, the system that's propping them up. Um, who knows where that will be in a decade. But given that in the U.S., all of the presidential candidates have to march through Iowa and talk about agriculture... I'd love to. I'd love to start converting monocrop fields into civil pastoral or agroforestry systems. Yeah. Um, the other the other big opportunity I see is in the ocean itself. Uh, kelp farming, seaweed forestry, um, and the the potential that those things have to replace plastic, for instance. Yeah. To replace carbon fuels, to replace um, uh, so many things that 
are produced in a detrimental way and are discarded in a detrimental way. Um, that, that's what I see. But I, I mean, the general model is find a distressed asset and flip it. And so uh, that's, that's where we're looking. Well, it sounds to me like actually in a way, you know, you guys, I don't know, but it sounds like your business model isn't even necessarily flipping it, it's cash flowing it, essentially. Like, are you it is cash flowing it, absolutely, yeah. but there's still, um, there's still very much a real estate side to it. There's a way to internalize that gain in real estate value without giving up management of the land. Right. Um, and so that's, that's part of our business model where... I mean, you take, uh, you buy a thousand acres at a million dollars, and then in a decade it's worth fifty million. Even if you want to hang on to it, you can uh, you can collect twenty four million of that and own the majority of it. Right, right. So <clears throat> that sort of leads to another. So that, I mean, it is a part of it. Yeah. It leads to another interesting question, which is, you know, what what do you think? the sort of financial, um, uh, I, I'm my, having a brief brain fart here. What, what are the financial instruments that we need to be, you know, old or new, that we need to be, that entrepreneurs in this sort of regenerative in, industry need to be literate about and that provide oh, important goodness. opportunities? There's a lot of innovation happening here. Uh, there's a lot of innovation happening here and I'm not up to date on all of them. What we're pursuing is uh, one, there's depending on what country you're in governments may be very very supportive of entrepreneurial efforts that are restoring ecologies. Uh, in in Mexico, for instance, there's one where if you put up 20% of the capital, the Mexican central government will put up the other 80% with a planned exit within five to 10 years. So that's, that's one that we're thinking about where on that 80%, we don't give up any equity uh, um, because, because Mexico just has that structure in place. Yep. Uh, there's... Green bonds are another one, but I, don't, I haven't seen them applied to ec ecological restoration. Like there, There's all sorts of social capital bonds that are out there, but they tend to be more focused on cities. Uh, but I think, I think that's starting to change. Tom, uh, who's our mutual friend, Tom? Tom Duncan. He started Good Bank. Yeah. Tom Duncan is work, is doing a ton of work on that stuff. Uh, and in fact, I would ask him that question before I ask me that question. We're, we're going with a mix of um, debt, revenue, and equity-based capital. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, we, we, we look pretty, we look fairly conventional in that sense, um, at least on these initial projects that we're going after. And how is the reception? How are investors receiving the pitch? So we, the only investors that know about us right now are ones that we're already friends with. 
mm-hmm. um, whether through the network of my partners or through people that I knew at Stanford who, who kind of took an interest when I was talking about it while I was there. We haven't, um, we haven't gone out and actively done cold pitches to people that don't know us yet. And I think, I think we actually, for our initial projects, not for the big one in Mexico, but for our initial projects, I think that's going to be fine. I think we're going to have enough. And so it's, it's people that already understand at least the seawater ag side of what we're doing and bought into that vision, you know, 10, 20 years ago. Yeah. So we have, we have friendly people who believe in the vision and, and want to put money up for it. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's just because I'm, I'm lucky to have the partners that I have. I've got a fantastic team of guys who, uh, Three, and so there's five of us, but three out of the five of us are 70 or older. Yeah, so they, right. they're bringing a lot of wisdom to the table and maybe are a little bit more they, mellow they than your, really your, general, your general like startup uh, founder. It's, it's, <laughs> maybe not. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So they have a tremendous amount of experience um, and, some, and, some, and a lot of connections they've made over the years. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's a funny dynamic. I, I personally, cause I, cause I'm the CEO, but I'm 38 and they're like, at least one of them is twice as old as I am. Yeah. Um, and so I feel like I have three mentors who are coaching me in addition to, you know, taking their roles as far as they want to take them. And it's, uh, it's been really really beautiful actually it's been really beautiful uh i i feel very very lucky that that we found each other and that we've decided to go at this yeah that's fantastic well i'm excited for uh regenerative resource corp um me too yeah it's fantastic. me too thanks Craig. yeah no i'm 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 excited i know uh I know there's we've been sort of scheming a little on the side to see how how region network can support in um, sort of the monitoring verification and issuance of um, yep. ecosystem yep. service credits I'm really excited about that I, I am particularly excited that, that you sort of represent kind of a, a buyer class a user class um, that I think we're mm-hmm. on our team we're really excited about. You know, how do we support cool. as a business the the mm-hmm. the investors and entrepreneurs who are focused on landscape scale regeneration as their business model is something you know we spend yeah. a lot of time thinking about. Um, I think it's a it's nascent. It's like it's not yet a um, it's not yet a market. It's going to be in the next five not years. Yet. You know, it's it's going to be Hopefully. A, yeah. So. Um, yeah, I'm excited to just kind of keep a pulse on it and and see where we can support and learn as well. And so, you know, I, I know um, your your little guy um, wanted to play. <laughs> We're get... doing okay. He's distracted for now. Okay, good. Well, let, Plus, you... I'm in I'm in no physical condition to play right now. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Um, so let's see what. Where could we go here? I mean, I, I'm halfway tempted to like 
you know, to to circle back around and and dig back into this sort of semantic, uh, potentially pedantic uh, yeah. argument yeah. around is this markets or commons causing our, um, you know, uh, malaise? Yeah. Oh no, it's. I don't think it's commons causing it. I think I think commons are the the front line where the destruction happens. Yeah. Right. That's yeah. that's what it is. It's that it's that commons in the modern day appear to me to be very fragile because nation states supersede everything so much that they they just overrule them. Uh, by and large, I don't. I there. I would like to think there are exceptions to that. I think but, no. I think um, that that's accurate. I think well, and so do markets. Um, not even yeah, nation yeah. states. Um, you know, and, and there it gets kind of tangled, you know, when you start to think about, and I don't say, I, I don't say neoliberal in the term, in, in, in like a, I'm, I'm spitting on the, you know, I'm, I'm spitting it out in <laughs> hatred, but like the, the neoliberal, yeah, yeah, yeah. the neoliberal economic theory of, um, uh-huh. that, that was developed quite successfully and then implemented so, somewhat covertly right. and, and somewhat, you know, explicitly everywhere. Um, th- there is yep. essentially a, a, a real core part of that, which in which there's a trust in, you know, the, the mystical properties of the ubiquitous market. Um, and, and, and maybe an ignorance around the role of local commons management as a, um, and so I think there is, there's something there, which is, um, which I, I think, and, and, and I'm always sort of trying to push back and say, hey, look, I think it's useful to notice that commons actually are, they are a specific sort of um, anthropological, I mean, using an anthropological lens, you can see that there is a social structure that's called the commons and and it 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 gets destroyed and then what is left are these unstewarded common resources that get it's you know it's like the act of enclosure over and over and over again basically like the disillusion of the commons that's right yeah yeah that's right and you know Uh, that's why i think our difference is largely semantic i think that's right no, I, yeah. maybe even non-existent, it seems like. You know, I, I mean, I think I just shudder. It's like I don't want, I don't want to, I, I don't think it's useful for our movement specifically or even like the larger economic conversation. It's like there's a certain level of precision that's needed. And and when we talk about the tragedy of the commons and, you know, and Garrett Hardin's, you know, sort of paper on the tragedy of the commons, um, yeah. what I just said, which you were agreeing with, which is there's a social construct around stewarding, you know, common pool resources and ecological commons, um, that essentially is overlooked yep. and dissolved and destroyed. Like he didn't yep. even see that. Like in his mind, he, pre- he presented this sort of picture of, you know, just this sort of like abstract non-existent picture in which there are no... There's just like, there's just a field 
And everybody keeps no, putting cows on it. And there's no such thing as like right. a social contract where I know my neighbors and they know me and we can tell when we overgraze. Right. Essentially. <laughs> well, in a, in, a tribal, in a tribal society, at least, at least the Himma system, it was strictly enforced. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you grazed in the wrong place at the wrong time, you were stripped of 10% of your flocks and you got flogged. Yeah. Exactly. Right. So it was. <laughs> it was a very strictly enforced system. Exactly. Right. It's not. It's not that there's you know these people that just happen upon a place, um, and it's 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 when that, and th- this is where we're using the term differently. It's when that social structure is absolved that the tragedy of the commons occurs. Well, right. The tragedy of the commons yeah, is. That's not how he wrote about it. The tragedy of the commons is the disillusion of that social structure, because I would yeah. say, and and then what happens, I would say, is kind of like what we could say is it's the tragedy of the market, because then you have mm. un and and not that it's a you know you, so you, right because you have these different forces that are that. There's interest superseding the proximate stewards. And essentially, you have, a, you have an asset liquidation event, basically, that's untethered Absolutely. to the, the, the basic ecological assets. So that's why I'm like, no, I think that's actually, that's right. there's like two step. First, you have the tragedy of the commons, that the commons are destroyed. And then you have the tragedy of the yeah. market, that we don't internalize these real you know, values and... And instead, we yeah. liquidate them, and yeah. boom, it's gone. So. And then it's gone. Yeah, and then it's gone, and it's happened will, all so over. So I'll bring up I'll bring up a subject that I want to hear what you have to say about it. Great. Uh, you and I met at Permaculture Voices three. I think that's right. In twenty fourteen. I think that's so right. So five years ago, give or take. Yeah. It might have been PV2. I spoke at PV2 and PV3, but I don't know which one I met you at. Um, and at the at that time, there were like a dozen of us that were, were using the term regenerative agriculture. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was it was a tiny, tiny, tiny thing. There was that Facebook group that Darren ran called Rarians, where that term was used very commonly, and then and it's been crazy to see in five years how much this term has exploded yeah it's exploded yeah right and people now there's like regenerative blockchain which you might know what that means i have no clue whatsoever (laughs) what regenerative blockchain might mean because because to me the regenerative part is directly tied to ecosystems and ecologies and water and land, right? And and there's like regenerative, uh, you know, co-housing. And like it's the term is being co-opted, like we knew that it would. Yep. Um, and I remember I I remember arguing with you when you guys are doing uh, what is regenerativeagriculture.com or whatever it is. Is it what? What's that website you guys did? Yeah, we, regenerativeagriculturedefinition.com, yeah. That's it. That's it. Um, 
and we were going back and forth on what that was. But now it seems like, you know, General Mills has picked up Regen Ag. Yep. And committed to doing a million acres of regenerative ag. And what that means to them is uh, uh, no-till cover crops. Yep. Right? Yep. That's what regenerative ag means to General Mills. That's right. Um, which, which admittedly is a, a massive improvement on, you know, multiple till no cover crops, but it, it's still right. It's it's an improvement, but it doesn't get to uh, it doesn't get to the heart and soul of the issue. It doesn't get to biodiversity, even though they're going to have much more biodiversity on those farms where they're doing cover crops and, and not tilling. Yeah. Um, primarily in the soil, it, they'll have much more biodiversity in the soil. Um, but you know, their, their amphibian population is not going to go up. Yeah. Their lizard population is not going to change. Their bird population is not going to change. And so I'm wondering, a, how do you feel about this explosion? And B, what steps would you think that we ought to take as a movement? Like, do we do we want to be purists about it and enforce and kind of be like, no, that isn't it, even though it's a great improvement? Or do we want to welcome this co-option as like a marginal step towards what we want to see? Hmm. That's a great question. <clears throat> yeah, it's been a crazy ride. I mean, being part of that whole five-year explosion of regenerative ag onto the scene. Um, if you had asked me this I mean, had like a year ago, I would, I would have been way more triggered about it all. Um, I'm now, I've sort of yeah. like made my peace in a, in a way. Um, I, I want to hear about your peace. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, in a way I would say region network is my answer, which is, I think ecological state and and having all stakeholders having ubiquitous immediate access to real information about biodiversity, carbon, yeah. water, outcomes on landscapes everywhere yeah. is my answer because that's as you said yeah. like regenerative outcomes. I, I don't like yeah. to me. Yeah. Cover crop, no cover crop, you know, uh, tillage, no tillage, um, whatever. It's all context specific. It all has to do with what's the potential of the yeah. land? What's the potential of the land yeah. and yeah. and how are we stewarding it? And developing, I mean, region network is our attempt to develop a, a platform that makes it, that, that essentially like, commodifies the verification and reporting about ecological state so that it is so inexpensive and available that it is um, just just the foundational piece of any conversation anybody has. That's our hope, right? You bet. You bet. Hold on. I've got a... What's up? Not right now. Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it has been a four months. 
Okay, then buy it. Just buy it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, so I don't know if that answers your question. I mean, I think obviously I have my own opinions that I think I laid out in in our sort of levels of regenerative agriculture white paper. Um, yeah. Uh, pretty clearly, you know, like to me, yep. marching up, you know, marching up the orders, you get to wh where the expression of agriculture as a as a cultural connection with the greater living biome and like what it means to be human and um, be a keystone right. species on the planet right. and all these other sort of ways of holding things almost as a philosophical or spiritual imperative is what regenerative agriculture means to me. And that's not something that I would be very excited to have someone certifying basically. Right. I mean, that's, I don't, Absolutely. that's not what, you know, and, and certifications in and of themselves, <laughs> right. Certifications in yeah. and of themselves, I think are a really, really poor way of outsourcing some sort of um, missing trust mechanism, which has been eroded yeah. in the explosion of, of, you know, the global economy and just the way that the world yeah. works in the 21st century. Yeah. We, we use certifications. Yeah, people lie. Yeah, we use certifications because we can't, we don't have small enough social groups to, to get real, real to information, trust. basically. Yeah and, yeah, and to hold each other yeah. accountable. Um, however, I think there is a sense that I have that um, we can recreate through technology a sort of nested system of trust and transparency where you can choose who you're being transparent with about what in a way... Yep that creates a, a fire, far higher degree of accountability and serves markets, it serves markets realigning with a, a more holistic function where we're not optimizing for yeah. the efficiency of taking advantage of people who don't have information, essentially, <laughs> which is right. kind of currently what many markets are optimized for. So... I mean, that's kind of yeah, like a, a convoluted way of answering, but hopefully I sort of hit most of the key points there. Yeah, um, that's good. I, I mean, good. I, I think uh, I, I do, I want to... You and I have both taken the same approach. Yeah. Where we're like, okay, I'm just going to build the thing that I think should be out there because what else are we going to do, right? Uh, what else are we going to do? Just build it. What a, what? Yeah, let's let's build it, and then when people see that it can be built, and you know, let the let the market follow. Yeah, exactly. Build it and build let the market follow. Build build uh, build what the market of the future needs, basically. Yeah, and and build yeah. what the market of the future needs to be, maybe even <laughs> more yeah. pointedly. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a it's interesting to reflect back on 
that, you know, um, meet us meeting at, at Permaculture Voices 3, I, it was 3, I think, and just yeah. where things were at in the world and, and the arc of our, our respective projects and businesses. You know, uh, Terra Genesis International continues to do some really great work with, with mm. companies that want to take regenerative or regeneration to the deepest level they can. Right. And so there's, there are, by the way, I I have a, I have a potential client for you. Oh, awesome. Um, on, we'll talk about it offline. Yeah. Talk about it offline and and we'll shoot it over to the, we'll shoot it over to the, to the dudes, the, um, Luke and Russell and, and others who are really like, the leaders at, at Terra Genesis these days. I'm I'm yep. sort of all yep. all hands on deck, all immersed in this um, sort of infrastructure play, really, this digital infrastructure play. You bet. Yeah. You bet. Which has been a crazy I never thought that my answer to how to create a regenerative economy, if you would have asked me in twenty fourteen, I never would have answered applied cryptography is I'm the answer. I'm gonna build a digital platform. <laughs> never. Yeah. Never would have thought. Yeah. But here we are. Here we are. Yeah. Here we are. Cool. Well, it's been fantastic to catch up, Neil. I've had a lot of fun. Me too, Greg. And um, Me too. do you wanna do you wanna share any sort of parting resources or um, you know, web pages or other things if people are interested and want to follow your work? Oh, goodness. Um, we're building our website right now for um, regenerative resources. Uh, but I tend to send people to my webinar series. Yep. Which is a Sustainable Design Masterclass on YouTube. There's 200 hours of webinars with some really heroic people doing phenomenal work. Uh, and uh, otherwise, I'm on Facebook a lot, probably more than I should be, where I run a dryland restoration page. And I post there pretty regularly on what I'm about. So if, if anyone, I'm not on Instagram. Um, I'm not running El the Project's media anymore, although I will. I have one more video to make um, that will incorporate film that I did last week. It was my, it was my first visit in Saudi Arabia um, in a year and a half, and my first visit since we had cut. My first visit there seeing what it was like after rain since we cut irrigation in 2016. Uh, and it was it was uh, a phenomenal experience. Amazing! I'm excited to see. Excited to it's, see. Uh, it. It's something else when when you see bird nests and wild bees swarming in trees that you've planted in a place where trees aren't supposed to be able to grow. Yeah. It's yeah. Um, it's something else. Yeah. Amen. I, it's amazing. I mean, it sort Anyhow. of reminds me of. Um, did you ever see the that uh, little uh, animated um, version of the man who planted trees? Yes, I have. I guess yes, I, I have. That one, I cry every time I watch it. Yeah, me too. But, but uh, it's um, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. 
Good. Anyhow, I appreciate it, Greg. This has been really fun. Yeah. Have a I, have a beautiful I hope your evening. Podcast blossoms, and that you get thousands and thousands of listeners. Because <laughs> uh, it's a the message you're putting out is an important one. All right. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for being a part of it. You bet. My pleasure.